Hello, and welcome to Tech Connects, DICE's podcast where we dig into topics on tech hiring, recruiting, and careers that matter to you. I'm your host, Nick Kolakowski, and I'm going to talk to great guests every month about the current state of the tech careers world, including the tech job market, the hottest tech skills, what companies are doing to attract and retain technology professionals in a historically tight market, and much, much more. Our next guest is Michael Schutzler, the CEO of Washington Technology Industry Association, or WTIA. It's a consortium of a thousand tech companies working together to build a robust equity-centered tech sector that empowers thriving communities. A 30-year industry veteran, Schutzler has keen insight into how Washington State, one of the nation's original and largest tech hubs, has evolved over the decades and where it might go in the future. In addition to talking about the factors influencing the growth of tech hubs at the moment, we're going to delve into remote work, the ways in which factors like the cost of living can seriously impact a tech community, and much more. So let's listen in. Great. Um, so I wanted to talk about it, the tech sector in Washington state. So the state for decades, Amazon, Microsoft, all these great companies that have called the area home that have sprung up in Seattle, that in some ways have made Seattle and the areas around it, you know, with all the, the innovation and so on. Um, it's sort of synonymous with this incredible tech growth and so on. And the, the thing that I'm wondering, I mean, obviously Seattle is still prominent in everyone's minds, but there's also all these other tech hubs that have sprung up all over the place in recent years. You've got Raleigh, New York City, et cetera. Um, so how does how does Washington State, how, do, how does it stay innovative and competitive? I mean, now that there's sort of this diffusion of tech hubs and innovation and so on kind of all over the country, I mean, it's still, how does Seattle still stay Seattle? How does Washington State still stay Washington State in terms of tech? <laughs> You're not going to like me very much. Um, that the predicate of that argument, the question is the fallacy. Okay, there is, there, I'm, I'm, there I'm is happy it. to be disproven. Yeah, that's why that's we're good. There is a there is a, a spectacular amount of anecdotal evidence about you know this diffusion of talent or this migration of talent and so forth. Um, there's a study that I'm happy to share some details with you that shows. Uh, what that really looks like. Um, we, uh, we together with some partners, uh, commissioned a study to go see what's the truth, what's the actual data set um, going on. There is clearly, some, there are some great stories about people having had enough of San Francisco's expense to go leave. <clears throat> and therefore, by derivative, you're hearing about stories about um, companies in downtown Seattle who've just had enough of homelessness and lack of security and lack of police and a whole bunch of other stuff saying, okay, we're not going to reopen in Seattle. Now that the pandemic's over, we're going to Bellevue. And there's a lot of that going on for sure. That's storytelling. But when you actually look at the math, how many human beings have left and how many human beings have arrived in the Seattle area, uh, the evidence is clear that we are still a net gainer of talent in this this area. And we're also a still one of the top creators of jobs um, in the country. And so what's, it's going to in. Yeah, it's really quite interesting. Um, there, there's, there's some truth that some, some of the smaller towns um, have seen spectacular growth in tech talent. And that's because of the, it doesn't take a lot. Like if you have 500 people who are now in, we'll stick in Washington as, a, as an example. If you have 500 people who are now living in Spokane who weren't because they, they like, they prefer the lifestyle, they prefer the affordability, 
I mean, the net impact of Seattle is the rounding error, but the net impact of Spokane is a really big deal, mathematically speaking, right? And so we're seeing that across the country, that there are big lifts in small towns where there's a lot of folks that have showed up because what is factual is that remote work has exploded. It is five to six times higher than it was pre-pandemic. And that doesn't seem to be slowing down. That seems to be accelerating, actually. What's put, I mean, if there's this net gain, which is great, what's what's pulling them in? I mean, what does what's making people say this this is where I want to settle in and, and build a startup or, or work for one of the big companies or what have you? Everything's relative, right? So yeah. uh, for some people in Northern California, Seattle seems like a bargain. <laughs> so for and 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 there's other aspects of it. It's we're still at the at the end of the day, we're one of the lowest net effective tax rates in the country, um, which is both good and bad, right? It's it's great from the standpoint of being able to attract talent and intra- attract entrepreneurs and private investment. It might not be so great in terms of running a state budget, but um, we're, we're one of the lower effective tax rates in the country, which makes us very attractive. We still, sure, cost of living has gone up enormously, um, especially in the, the I-5 corridor area, um, but relative to other parts of the country, other tech hubs, um, it's actually pretty good. Austin, by contrast, has also exploded in cost. You yeah. talked—I was just in Austin um, about a month ago. And you talk to the locals down there. I mean, their their experience of the rising cost of living is even worse than it's been in Seattle. So, the reason why Seattle's still attractive is because, relative to alternatives, for many people, it's still very attractive. And I think the other thing that people don't have, like the, the, a lot of the common conversation on this topic in the public discourse is while remote work is absolutely much more prevalent than it was before, there is still a desire by corporate leaders to have their top talent be local, even if they don't come to work every day and want them physically accessible and easy to reach because a lot of the creative processes we've learned through the pandemic just don't work on Zoom. Yeah, that's definitely right? true. Zoom yeah. is a terrible way to collaborate. Yeah. It turns out to be a great way to have a quick meeting in between the collaboration session. But if you want to do some design, if you want to do some creative processes that might require a few hours of, of, of folks gathering together, like the whiteboarding process is is uh, marginally acceptable. But the real connectivity among human beings requires presence. Are a lot of the, the companies that you're talking to, a lot of the local companies, are they veering more towards the everyone comes back to the office full time or everyone comes back into the office a few days a week model? Or are they still sort of embracing the remote model? I mean, is, is there any momentum one way or the other? I mean, to that point, because, yeah, collaboration is great. I'm just wondering what the companies you're talking to are actually how they're actually implementing. That. Yeah. Yeah. The common the common theme, uh, the vast majority of experience um, is that if a company has the money to produce world-class hybrid interactions, um, and we're talking real money, right? There's, there's special video equipment, special audio equipment. There's, there's a team of people necessary to pull off the production of a hybrid event or a hybrid meeting. Those companies that have the money for that, they're seeing a, a lot of utility in the hybrid mechanism, which means some people are together in a room and other people are dialing in from elsewhere. 
But for those organizations that don't have the money to consistently deliver a really world-class hybrid experience, they're, they're sticking to remote as the principal and then having episodic meetings in person um, as needed. Sometimes quarterly, I've heard stories about some, pe- some teams are meeting once a week. So it depends, depends on the function, depends on the company size, it depends on the company distribution. Like if a company's got employees all over the country, they don't get to better get together every week. They're getting together once a quarter, typically. I mentioned that's, I mean, it must be really difficult for those companies where if you're meeting once a week, once a quarter, whatever, just to maintain a culture, I mean, to that collaborative thing, again, that you get in the office also promotes a really strong culture. But if you have that, where do they even begin to sort of maintain like kind of the cohesiveness that you would get? It seems like that's a real challenge. It is. It is. um, And the, the challenge is in the phrasing. If you want to maintain the culture, you're screwed. (laughs) Hey, yeah. If you you are, if you accept the situation, and many companies have, mind you, if you accept the situation, well, this is this is our reality and I want to build the culture. Therefore, what? Now, when you look at it through that lens, it's creating a new form of how to build culture. And what we're discovering is that a lot of companies and this, by the way, is true for us, too. We started out as a downtown Seattle shop. And in the last 12 months, we haven't hired anybody in Seattle. All of our hires are spread out across the country because we went fully remote through the pandemic. So we're seeing this ourselves too, in addition to hearing this from other companies that we serve, that you have an opportunity to build an even stronger culture through this environment if you get your messaging clear and if you deliver on your promises. Like your accountability now no longer has... Uh, the water cooler to sort of make things smooth. Like your accountability is clear. If you say you're going to give employees a new monitor <laughs> to make it easier to work from home, you better show up with the goods, right? You got to you gotta really deliver on whatever your promises are to your employees. And you have to be clear about what culture is. And so that requires an engagement that is actually quite positive for many companies. It's just different. Yeah. I could see that. But I mean, the other thing, I mean, when for the companies that are having people coming back in and hybrid and so on, that's also probably good for Seattle and all these other towns too, because presumably people are spending money out once they're back in the office, they're spending money on lunch. They're 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 contributing somehow to the local mm-hmm. environment, economy, whatever whatever terminology yeah. you want to use there. Is is when you walk around Seattle, do you see, is there kind of a difference there? I mean, have things like really sprung back? Are there more office workers? Are there more, or is it still kind of trying no. to find its feet? I mean, where is it right now? Yeah, there's a great article in the uh, New York Times that sort of benchmarks how, I think there was like 10 or 11 cities that are being compared, including Seattle. And Seattle is one of the ones that is really struggling with this huh. return Again, this is if you want to maintain your culture, you're screwed. If you want to go back to the way it was as a city, mm-hmm. um, you're you're done. <laughs> you have yeah. to go forward. And Seattle's really, really trying to come to grips with that. There's no such thing as like getting the the tech workers to come back just because. Yeah. The city has to redefine itself. It has to it has to reposition why anybody would go downtown. So the it's ironic that what the city really needs to deliver on. Uh, and there's evidence across the country that those cities that do this well 
are succeeding you have to you have to reinvigorate the art scene you have to reinvigorate the entertainment sector you have to pr produce um hospitality events like there's got to create an excitement and with that this is where the other part that seattle struggles is that you also have to make it safe that you can bring your kids yeah and if you don't have a great reason to come to the city and even if you did if it's kind of unsafe or feels unsafe to go there that's why bellevue wins because the mayor of bellevue has known this long before the pandemic she you know lynn robinson has said you know many years ago if you want to make a great city you got to create parks where you can walk your kids like that's a that's a thesis for her and that's becoming a lesson learned for mayors all over the country that if your city isn't walkable good luck bringing people back to the city because they no longer have the necessary magnet of having to go downtown to go do a job. They get to do their job in the burbs. Yeah. So the future is, is entertaining and safe in terms of drawing back everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Principle, right. You got to have a good reason to come to the city. Do you, it, I mean, I've been having a couple of conversations with people in, in different cities and the general consensus in terms of attracting startups is cheap real estate, you know, which we just were talking right. about in the sense of, you know, Seattle is cheaper than the Bay Area and so on. And then safety is something that's also been brought up in access to BC. Seattle has all the, all the, I mean, the area around Seattle as well. I mean, all the components are there to have sort of a burgeoning startup scene. Um, and I assume that's happening. I assume there's, there's startups springing all over the place or is it, is it something where you're still trying to kind of get momentum behind it? I mean, where's, where's the startup scene right now? Startup scene is, is hot Good. and uh, history having having been in the startup world since the mid 90s and having seen a few cycles of this it's counter cyclical so when there's a recession more entrepreneurs come out of the woodworks to go start their companies partly because they've they've had it working for the big company because they just got laid off or they're anticipating a future layoff or whatever there's a whole bunch of reasons why people in this environment started up. So the startup scene is hot. And again, Seattle's got a long, long history of creating an environment and the services. And most importantly, Seattle now has a critical density of former founders who serve as the essential network to new founders to learn what to do. It's almost an apprenticeship, right? When you become a founder, if you do it completely on your own, you typically fail. It's those that connect to other founders who've already been through the gauntlet where they learn how to go about doing this job. And the Seattle's just packed full of that talent. Um, and I see, I, I see that there's an opportunity for the city, again, as long as it's interesting and safe, more and more folks will launch their companies in downtown Seattle like they used to at the moment, you know, this, the evidence is, is too early, but it looks like there's going to be as many startups in Bellevue as there is in Seattle. I was going to ask because there's lots of startup activity. We were just in Spokane last week. There's a ton of startup activity in Spokane. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask because I mean, right now when you talk to <clears> tech executives, there's this generalized fear that a recession is 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 looming upon us, and that there's there's lots of economic uncertainty. And so, if, as you're saying, if there's this counter cycle then we should expect to see an uptick. If it's if it's not already in process, it's probably be coming soon. I mean, at least theoretically, according to that. Yeah, sure. So it's all about timing, right? So the startups of now, so if you take 100 startups now, we know in five years, 90 of them will be dead. And there's only 10 left. That's 
Yeah. That's historical math. If prologue, that's what yeah. we see. So 10 years from now, you know, there'll be many dozens of very large, awesome new companies we never heard of before. Mm-hmm. So that growth will, will happen. Um, the current recessionary headwinds are to me highly ironic because most of the recession we're experiencing in the tech industry is the anticipation of a recession. Yeah. So when you have a large corporation like Amazon doing a hiring freeze or Microsoft, you know, not only doing a hiring freeze, but a reduction in force, they're doing that in t- anticipation of future pressure, pre- profit pressures. Yeah. It hasn't happened yet. They're just they're predicting it. And so by predicting it, they're creating a recessionary downforce. Um, that's, you know, that's, there's, you know, that's also, there's nothing new there. There's lots of history of that. In it, does, it does seem like a self-fulfilling mm-hmm. prophecy in a certain weird way. The other thing too, and especially, you know, Meta and Salesforce both mentioned this in the, the, the layoff related notices that they put out, but during the pandemic, a lot of these companies, especially the ones that were obviously have cloud apps and services, had this influx of cash, these massive profits as they immediately parlayed into a burst of hiring and investments and, you know, the metaverse and other initiatives. And now it seems that after this rapid acceleration, they have to tap the brakes because, you know, obviously things change, the environment's change, and now they're they're in this position. So it's did, did Washington State go through that? I mean, was there like a huge burst of hiring around the pandemic? Because there's so many cloud services, I would imagine there's probably a huge burst of hiring. And now maybe it's 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 break tapping time for everybody or, or how did that yeah, over the last couple of years, how'd that go? Up into and including the summer, Seattle, again, was still a net creator of jobs and a net attractor of talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's definitely slowed down now. Yes. Yeah. You know, there, there are startups that are forming, but even if they're hiring, they're hiring, you know, if a hundred new startups formed last quarter, which is typically approximately what the number is, a hundred new companies formed last quarter and their grand total hiring is maybe 300 people. Microsoft freezes or does a reduction in force. There's thousands of people. So right now, right, the downward pressure is more forceful than the upward pressure in terms of job creation and, and um, talent acquisition. Among the companies that are hiring, is there any, is it just sort of a generalized hiring They're they're hiring for software developers and so on? Or are they, um, going for, I mean, is, is there any sort of specializations or something that companies are, are more interested in? I mean, what's, what's the, what's that granular landscape look like? Yeah. The, the, the number one job continues the number one job by far in the tech industry. Um, and I'll, and I'll, I'll define that a little middle more widely and say the tech sector, which mm-hmm. would include large tech teams in non-tech companies. Like, like for example, Starbucks has somewhere around 7,000 tech workers inside mm-hmm. it and just in downtown Seattle. So if you look at the wider definition of tech sector, um, you know, there's not the number one job is software developer. Yeah. Like that's 60% of all tech jobs is that, mm-hmm. but in terms of other talent, there's, there's a real, um, uh, dearth of product marketing and product management talent in this, in this area and always has been. Um, but what's shifted is that the pandemic has taught companies that they can get that talent, which it's in droves in the Midwest and on the East Coast. So well, it's a little easier to acquire that talent now if you let them work remotely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, job creation, um, you know, again, has slowed down quite a bit. But the primary 
the primary focus in this area has been software developer and uh, product manager and product marketer. That's always been among the companies that I've chatted with recently, that, that sort of pervasive fear that if they do enforce any sort of strict hybrid or back to the office, that they're going to lose out on the remote talent that might be yeah. calling in from Chicago or other places around the country. And it'll, it'll be interesting to see sort of how that pans out, because I don't think it's sort of, you know, in, in the category of self-fulfilling prophecies, it seems that there's been all these fears about hiring in this new remote environment and so on. And, and But it also seems that companies are still able to find who they need locally. It's just, yeah. Huh. Yes. It's on the margins where it really makes a difference. Yeah. There's yeah, no, that, an enormous talent pool in the Pacific Northwest, enormous. And the aperture is a little wider than downtown Seattle now. It's it's I-5 corridor plus. So yeah. that's an even bigger talent pool. So for many companies here, whether they're startups or, or mid-sized companies or even a large corporation, if they're looking for new talent, they can look locally first and eight times out of 10, they can find what they're looking for here. But uh, for much, you know, any of that, anything on the margins, they're going to go elsewhere and, and be flexible about that. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, locally, it's, it's, it's a highly educated and skilled workforce. So I imagine startups or large companies, you, you don't necessarily need to look remotely because you've got decades worth of, you know, kind of this, this accrual of talent, um, which I imagine helps versus. Especially now. Yeah. Just because, because there's so much. Uh, reduction in hiring among the large corporations, and in some cases, there's even a reduction in force. There's more talent available. It's a it's a little easier to get the talent now. You know, a year ago, that you would we would not have had that as a statement. The, the job creation talent supply delta is about ten x a year ago. That's mm -hmm. not true anymore. The um. One of the things that I do is I look at the diversity reports that companies like Microsoft put out in terms of hiring and, and creating a, a you know effective workforce and so on. But a diverse workforce is also a focus of these companies. And I'm just wondering what are what are local companies doing to? They talk a lot about creating more diverse workforces. What are they actually doing towards that? And is it working? Is it are these companies actually developing more equitable, diverse workforces as they've been promising for years? Yeah, <clears throat> larger corporations are struggling with this. Okay, why? Because, well, I mean, it's hard to turn an aircraft carrier. That's true. Um, yeah. And change direction. I mean, it, it, the you know the changing of direction of a very large ship is a little slower than a small one. Um, <clears throat> there's let's let's go to the predicate though. Like the most important thing in here is to recognize there's a reason why. Some, not all, some companies, especially in the tech sector, are focused on diversity. And that's because it's become very evident that a wide definition of diversity, which is race, gender, um, uh, political affiliation, educational yeah. credentials, I mean, go wide on the mm -hmm. definition of, of diversity. The more diverse your teams are, the more creative they are. Yeah. And if you are suff if you're suffering in an environment like most of the tech sectors uh, companies are, in which there are complex problems that are very often unconventional, like it's a brand new approach to something. Like if I'm trying to invent a new product, you want to be as creative as possible, so you need a more diverse team. There's evidence that shows that you're going to be more successful in creating new products if you have a more diverse team. The second reason why is actually an existential threat. The entire workforce in the United States, the demographics are shifting. Hmm. 
substantively towards non-white majority. So those companies that realize that the workforce is moving in that direction, if you start now practicing your skill at creating an inclusive workforce, then diversity is actually an outcome. And that's where the mindset of a number of companies has started to move to is realizing that they have no choice. They actually have to become really good at not only recruiting diverse talent, but retaining it. And that ultimately is the big challenge for our industry is many, many companies in our industry have gotten much better at recruiting the talent. They haven't gotten very good at retaining it. How, I mean, how do you retain a diverse workforce? Is it a matter of simply like incentivizations? Is it a cultural thing? Is it a little column A, a little bit of column B? How, do, how does, what, what are the more effective ways for that and to actually? There are a number of components to that. The, the, the most significant factor uh, based on the work we've done now for the last four or five years, really working with companies to figure out what's working and what's not. The number one factor is leadership competencies. Hmm. So leadership competencies historically have focused on things like project management and financial metrics and and motivating employees. What they haven't focused on is what is your your language and what is your behavior skill set in creating an inclusive environment? Are you creating adversarial environments? There's a long history in our industry of thinking of an adversarial competitive environment as being somehow something that's helpful to become a more competitive company second and that's a lot of not workers correct. miss the ability to collaborate in person yeah an i mean I, I could see that that's it's, the key reason why many technology it, it also seems that hybrid work where they go back to their office with a lot of these companies especially many in companies the are working on how to bring the collaboration they, you know every year they put out these things the percentages move only incrementally and then they tend to blame it on the educational pipeline but they never actually mention any of these issues with regard to retention and adversarial and all the rest of stuff so it's interesting that it's sort of i mean these issues seem pretty clear cut they don't they don't seem to be citing them which is yeah that's well i'll tell you that's a root of our frustration in the work that we've done in building a tech apprenticeship across the country and and helping and a number folks. of companies we'll with see their diversity challenges. And remember, DICE is your um, best resource that to find is, tech That is a, to a specious argument. It's, it's really the awful. There is, there is no evidence to support. There's, there's no women or people of color in the pipeline. You're just looking in the wrong talent pools. Yeah. If you insist that you're going to work, work with only the top 25 schools in the country, then you are dealing with their demographics. For sure, that's true. And it's also true that somewhere around sixth grade, our current public school system across the country, not just in in Washington, in somewhere around sixth grade, girls and young children of color vote themselves out of math tracks. Hmm. Like that's a societal systemic problem. That's true. But in the end, if you're looking for women of color to add to your team, you can find them in droves. You just actually have to do the effort to go find them. And you have to actually create a system in which they feel welcome. Yeah. And as you mentioned in terms of, I mean, the the apprenticeship program that you just alluded to, I assume, is something meant to alleviate that. It's something meant to train people to go into those jobs. I mean, programs like that, I imagine, would be helpful if more of them were implemented. Absolutely. Yeah. We're where there's Again, there's there's plenty of wonderful, diverse talent. And again, go wide on your definition and you can find lots of diversity in community colleges. You can find it in um, smaller, smaller schools. You can find it in, in people who uh, shifted their careers 
from you know Uber driver to software developer because they went to a coding boot camp. You yeah. just need an industry that's willing to engage with that particular talent pool, and it's been very reluctant to do so. Does Washington State have a lot? Of, I mean, obviously there's great schools and so on. I mean, are there a lot of those programs that are designed to to apprentice people to train them to shift them from Uber driver to software developer? I mean, locally is there that kind of ecos that that teaching ecosystem? There's a handful, you know, the Apprentee, which we created, which is a d- apprenticeship across the country, started here in Washington and still yeah. functions here in Washington. Ada Developers Academy has been around for a while and do a really good job of focusing strictly, almost almost entirely on women um, to reskill them. But our, our problem in this state really is a systematic, catastrophic defunding of the public school system over the last 25, 30 years. Yes. We're, we don't rank very high in this, in this country on public funding for schools. Um, our computer software focus by the state legislature over the past five years or so on trying to uh, fund and, and create uh, training programs to allow for more AP, AP math, AP computer uh, science in the public school systems. It's, it's hardly moved the needle at all so far. We just, we, we have a lot of unfunded mandates in this state. Last week, I was talking to Kevin Kelly, who's the head of AWS education or one of the heads of AWS education. He was saying that Amazon is investing an extraordinary amount of money in educating people in cloud skills. And obviously the, one of the points of that is you get everybody using AWS and then, you know, you it, it, there's, there's a certain angle that's beneficial to them in there, but I'm just wondering you see companies, large companies offer these education and training programs. Do those do those help? I mean, in terms of solving these talent gaps, in terms of fixing some of these other issues, or is that just not part of this overall discussion in terms of education? No, it helps very well, very much. That's a okay. very that's there's a long history of the tech industry having organizations that figure out that if you get people trained on your platform, they yeah. end up using it. Mm-hmm. A deck computer did that with the Vax computing system. Apple did that for for decades, focusing yeah. their their efforts on the education sector. And AWS is a good student of history. Yeah, no, they are. I mean, it seems like they're training tons of people at the very least. Absolutely, doing a really good job of that. So that was interesting. If you work in tech, you know that Seattle, Bellevue, and other cities are synonymous with tech innovation, as well as some of the biggest names in the industry, including Microsoft and Amazon. Washington State's tech scene also has some valuable takeaways for other tech hubs across the country. First, tech hubs, especially those on the rise, need to provide a reasonable cost of living for technology professionals and others. There also needs to be an attractive culture. People want to live and work in places that are fun. Second, tech hubs and centers of innovation can spring up in all sorts of circumstances. We might be heading into a recessionary environment at the moment, but that's when many technology professionals decide to strike out on their own and finally get their startup off the ground. If you have enough startups in an area, founders can connect with each other and with talent and create a meaningful community. Third, while tech hubs remain vibrant places, companies have discovered that an openness to remote and hybrid work can unlock a sizable talent reservoir. If you try to put together a team of tech professionals, especially specialized ones, say that five times fast, don't discount how offering a remote job can help you land the talent you need. And with that, we'll see you next time. And remember, DICE is your best resource to find the tech talent you need to fill your open roles, and for technologists, the best place to grow your tech career. 